Welcome to Catalyst. My name is JR. I'm the teaching pastor here. And as we are starting out this morning, I wanted to tell you about something that I learned in uh, New Orleans when I was doing hurricane relief stuff. So uh, you probably remember that in 2005, the city of New Orleans was hit by Hurricane Katrina and just absolutely devastated. Homes were under uh, 17 feet or more of water for over 20 days. And it was, it was, it was a effort that the city is still in many ways recovering from. And I, I had the opportunity to get down there several times in the years following the hurricane uh, to do some relief work. And so we would go, sometimes there are just two or three or four of us. Uh, sometimes there's, you know, a group of maybe 10 or 15 of us. But uh, for, especially in the early years, what we did was, the, the process was called gutting a house. And so you'd have to go in and take everything out of the house, like all the appliances, everything that was in all the closets, all the furniture, all of that, and pile it up on the curb for the trash pickup to take away. And then you had to strip the house all the way down to, like you had to pull out all the sheetrock or the plaster walls, whatever, all the way down to the base, uh, to the, the wall studs. Then you had to tear up all of the flooring down to the baseboards. It was just this in, incredibly grueling process, uh, very labor intensive, a lot of, lot of hours. And so, you know, we're in there uh, working, working, working. And every time, every house, every family that we helped, the same thing would always happen. Uh, we'd be just doing all of this backbreaking work. And every single one of us at some point during the time we were there would end up talking with the homeowner. And they would just be kind of hanging out. And they would just start telling us stories about their life, stories about the home, stories about all, you know, all of the memories they had in the house. And there was like... It was, it, was, it was really beautiful, but there was this like t- type A part of my brain that saw how much work we had to do that was like, hey, I'm not trying, I mean, I didn't say this out loud, right? But in my head, I was like, I'm not trying to be rude, but like, we got a lot of work to do. Like, we're, we're here volunteering to like help you get your house back. And you seem to only want to like tell us stories. I, I would, if it were me, I would think that I would want all of you people to be in there working as hard as you could, as fast as you could to get the house done so that I could move back in so I could start my life again. But that never was the case in every point. Uh, and so what I learned in my time uh, working in Katrina, and I've seen this in, in, in disaster relief kind of over and over and over, is that the thing that people need the most when they're in that kind of a situation is not actually like the work and the labor. They need that, right? But what they actually need the most is, is human presence, they need someone to come with them and to sit with them and to just listen to the story of their life. They need to share, they need to mourn, they need to grieve all of this that has been lost. And they need someone who will let their voice and their story sort of be front and center and someone who won't rush that away or push it aside or kind of shush it. They need, they need to be heard. That's what, that's what people who are grieving need more than anything else. Not that they don't need anything else, but that's what they need the most. And I think that's the thing that we have the hardest time giving. Uh, if you're like me, you want to just kind of like ignore the story and the pain stuff. You want to find out, find things we can do to make it better, right? And to get past the icky emotional stuff and get to the, you know, get to the fix. And so this morning, we're, gonna, we're, we're at the end of our series on, on lament and on grief. And what we're going to see this morning is that when we make space in our midst for voices of, of gr- uh, grieving and lamenting, that, that we actually find that God is with us in a way that is 
uh, unique and distinctive and in a way that we need, in a way that we can't really access unless we bring voices uh, that are grieving and that are lamenting to the front and to the center. And so if you're a guest with us this morning, I just want to say how thankful we are that you're here. And the only thing we're going to ask of you throughout this whole morning, this you know, hour or so that we're together, is that you be open to hear from God. Because we believe God has gathered us here. We believe that God wants to speak to us and that if we will be open to hear from God, then God will speak to us. So again, if you're a guest, all we ask of you is that, that you be open. So if you'll stand, we're going to begin together by singing and by celebrating this God who is with us, who has come to us, and who does not leave us alone in our This is the last week in our series on lament. And throughout this series, we have been asking what it looks like to respond to grief, to pain, to trauma. We've been following the framework that theologian Walter Brueggemann set up, where he explains that when we experience trauma, when we experience pain, we are disoriented. What he means by that is that we all kind of go through life just sort of accepting that the way things seem to be is the way things really are. We don't question our assumptions. We don't question the way we see the world. We don't question our expectations about things until some kind of trauma or tragedy strikes. Maybe it's on a personal level, the loss of a relationship, the loss of a loved one, some kind of a job crisis. Uh, Sometimes it's at a cultural level. Sometimes there's some kind of natural disaster or a big cultural event that really shakes us to our core. And, it, and, and Brueggemann calls this disorientation. We're disoriented, right? It feels like our world has kind of been flipped on its end, and all of the things that we kind of held onto to make us feel safe and secure aren't there anymore. They've all been stripped away, and we're, we're left reeling. We're left disoriented. We're left without a clear vision of what our place in the world is. When we enter into a time of disorientation, our tendency is to want to go back to the way things were. Right? We want to we just kind of turn back the clock and, and make things the way they were before we felt so uneasy and insecure in the world. But uh, we all know that, particularly in the wake of trauma or tragedy, you, you can't really unring the bell. There's no going back to the way things were, as much as we want to and as much as we often try to do that. And so if, we, if we're not careful, we end up stuck in this cycle, right, where we're just kind of spinning our wheels trying to figure out how to get back to a place that we can never get back to. And uh, instead, what we can do, and what we've been looking at through this series, is we can enter into a process of lament. And, and, and lament actually guides us through that space of disorientation to what Brueggemann calls reorientation. And reorientation is not going back to the way things were. Reorientation is figuring out a new way to be in the world, a new way to be in relationship. Uh, and, and reorientation usually means that we have a deeper, more mature understanding of God and our relationship to God, a deeper, more mature understanding of other people and our relationship to other people, a deeper, more mature understanding of ourselves and of our relationship even with ourselves. And, and the, the process of lament is a process that helps us to find reorientation. When we enter into the process of, it's a, it's a painful process because it involves a lot of honest self-reflection. It involves a lot of sitting with grief, uh, things that, that usually make us very uncomfortable. But if we will engage in that pain, if we will follow that process, if we'll kind of be faithful to be present in the midst of that, uh, we come to a place where uh, we can find hope and healing. And that's actually what we're going to be talking about today. We've been in the Book of Lamentations, which is a series of, of five poems that uh, helped the people of God process the cultural trauma that scholars today call the exile. When the empire of Babylon, which was the most powerful empire in the world back in the 
early 500s BC, you know, the good old days. Uh, that when, when they came sweeping across the ancient Near East, just conquering, 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 conquering. And God's people, uh, when they saw this coming, rather than being faithful to God the way the prophets were telling them they needed to be, God's people instead uh, gave, uh, they, they, put, they made all these alliances with all of these other nations, and they put their trust in all of these other nations and in all of those other nations' gods. And then sure enough, when the Babylonian Empire came marching in, those nations either refused to help or sometimes even sided with Babylon because, you know, Babylon made a deal with them. They said, look, we're going to conquer you, but if you help us out, it'll it'll go a little easier on you. And so Israel found themselves betrayed and abandoned by all of these people that they had put their trust in. They found all of the things that they had put their trust in, all of the social structures, the political structures, the religious structures, the financial structures, uh, the social, even the family structures had all been ripped away and they entered into a time of cultural disorientation. And that's the, that's the, that's the experience that the book of Lamentations speaks to. It's, it's written by the prophet Jeremiah who lived through that experience with God's people. And rather than sort of like standing up on his high horse and pointing at them and saying, I told you so, if only you'd listen to me, he, he enters into that grief with them. And that's what we've been looking at throughout this series. And the first chapter and the third chapter were really about how uh, we need to be in solidarity with people who are in grief. But what our tendency is, is to rush past it or to ignore it, to offer nice answers, right? To tell people everything happens for a reason, or don't worry, God has a plan, or, or something like that. Uh, but but what, I, what people need is not actually answers, and not actually words, but presence. You need to be with people who are grieving. And then in the, the second and the fourth chapters, we're really about that space that comes to us, particularly in times of grief and trauma, where we have to do some honest self-reflection, and we have to ask, what was my role in where I am now, Right? Did I contribute in any way to the destruction of that relationship? Uh, did I have any part to play in the loss of that job? Or what, whatever, you know, and again, sometimes we don't, right? But a lot of times we do. A lot of times we played some kind of a part in that, and it's difficult to do that kind of honest self-reflection, uh, but that's part of the process of lament. It's coming really face-to-face with God and asking what our faithfulness or lack thereof has looked like and how that has contributed to where we are. And so today, in Lamentations chapter 5, we are, we are at the end of the series. This is the last poem. And today we're looking at uh, where the process of lamentation ends up, like where we get to uh, by the time we're getting to the end of this process. So uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Lamentations chapter 5. If you grab one of the free Bibles out of the back, this is on page 490. And if you don't have a Bible, please keep that one. Consider a gift from us. As you are turning or clicking over to Lamentations chapter 5, in order to talk about Lamentations chapter 5, we have to talk about ancient Hebrew poetic structures, which I know many of you are already experts in, but please bear with me just in case there are some people that don't spend their nights reading ancient Hebrew poetry in the original language, right? Um, There's probably a couple of you in here, and I just want to be sensitive to you. So um, you know this, right? You you probably remember this from having English class or something like that, that, that poetry has structure, and that matters. So like my favorite kind of poem is a haiku, because I find it very easy to write, right? It's five lines in the, or five syllables in the first line, seven syllables in the second line, five syllables in the last line. If you can do that, you can write a haiku. Or a limerick, right, where the first two lines rhyme, the second two lines have a different rhyme scheme, and then the last line rhymes with the first line. Uh, or, uh, like, you had to, probably in English class, right, you had to, you had to look at a poem and say, that, like, the A, B, A, B, or A, A, B, B, or A, B, B. You had to, you had to go through the rhyme. You know what I'm talking about, right? Poetry has structure. That's kind of what makes it a poem. And so, Hebrew poetry was the same way. There were structures 
in Hebrew poetry. And that's how uh, scholars today who are very far removed from ancient Hebrew culture can look back and identify not only that it is a poem, but what kind of poem it is. And that, is, that matters because the lament was a specific kind of Hebrew poetry. It had a specific structure, right? And so again, that like when you read through the book of Psalms, which is a collection of songs and poetry, uh, that's why scholars can look through and say, these songs are lament songs, right? These psalms are lament psalms, Be- not, not just because they're sad, right? But because they have a specific structure that is identifiable, right? Uh, well, Lamentations chapter 5 is a lament poem. It has the structure of a lament poem. That is interesting because the first four poems don't have that structure, Right? They have, some of them have other structures, like the first poem is actually like a funeral dirge. It has the, the structure of a funeral poem. But several of them don't have any structure at all. They're just kind of like free verse poetry, which is that stuff that you listen to and you're like, I don't understand poetry. Right? That's at least if you're me, right? that, that kind of free verse stuff that doesn't seem to have any rules. Right? And in Lamentations, that's on purpose. Because the experience of the people of Jerusalem in the wake of the exile is that their lives don't have any structure. Everything that gave their lives meaning, everything that made their world make sense has been ripped away from them. And they feel like they're living in a world that doesn't make sense. And so the poetry of Lamentations that's inviting people to process this, some of the stuff in the middle, it doesn't have any structure either. That's an artistic way of connecting with the people and inviting them in the midst of that grief to, to, to experience that sometimes, particularly in the midst of grief and trauma, it feels like life doesn't make any sense, right? It feels like all the things that gave your life meaning and purpose and hope have been ripped away. That's, that's all artistically there on purpose. And by the time you get to chapter five, the structure has come back. As, again, if we were all reading this in the ancient Hebrew and we all knew our ancient Hebrew product structures, you would be like, aha, look, this poem is a lament poem. And that would give you a certain set of expectations about the poem. One of them being that towards the end of a lament poem, the lamenter begins to cry out to God. They begin to ask God to come to them and to rescue them and to save them, right? So we're about to read the first few verses of Lamentations chapter five. And I wanted to talk about all of the structure stuff Because what we're going to read together at the beginning of this is not going to sound any different. If you've been here for the last four weeks and we've been working through Lamentations, it's not going to sound any different, really, from any of the stuff that we've been covering so far. And it's going to be difficult for us to hear that there's any hope or any kind of meaning at all in this. It sounds like it's just more of the same, right? So we need to understand that there is structure being brought back into this poem. And so I want to read this and then kind of talk about why that matters here in a moment. So here's the first few verses of Lamentations chapter 5. The poet says, Lord, remember what has happened to us. See how we have been disgraced. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We are orphaned and fatherless. Our mothers are widowed. We have to pay for water to drink, and even the firewood is expensive. Those who pursue us are at our heels. We are exhausted but we are given no rest. We submitted to Egypt and Assyria to get enough food to survive. Our ancestors sinned, but they have died, and we are suffering the punishment that they deserved. Slaves have now become our masters. There is no one left to rescue us. We hunt for food at the risk of our lives, for violence rules the countryside. 
Again, if we're just kind of reading this, like kind of how it hit me when I read it the first time, right? I was like, it just sounds, sounds like Lamentations 1 through 4 to me. It doesn't seem like there's anything different going on here. But the poetic structure of the narrative is telling us something important. It's saying that even in the midst of this darkness, even in the midst of this world that still seems just like broken and awful and devastated, structure is beginning to return. Things are beginning to make sense again. And, and in grief, that's kind of how it happens, right? It's not like there's a checklist of 10, 10 things to do when you're sad, and then once you've, once you've checked that 10th box, all of a sudden you're happy again, right? That's not how grief works. That's not how pain works. It's that every day you kind of, and you have good days and you have bad days, and you kind of wonder if this cycle is ever going to end. But at some point you kind of look around and you realize that your life is starting to make sense again, that the structures that give your life meaning and purpose are beginning to return, that hope is beginning to kind of creep back in. That's, that's how grief happens to us. And that's what we see in this poem, too. By the very nature of the fact that this poem has structure and purpose and meaning, it's sort of, it's sort of having a conversation with the content. It's saying that even as our lives look the same as they did at the beginning of the grieving process, hope is beginning to emerge. So Lamentations 5, it's sort of like, it's sort of like that 3.30 or 4 a.m. time, right? It's not midnight when things are the blackest and the darkest, and you're kind of wondering if the sun's ever going to come out again, right? It's that, and it's not dawn either. It's not, it's not like it's light out, or not even like pre-dawn. It's like that first moment when you kind of look west, and everything's still really black, and then you look to the east, and it's like there's just that little promise of light. It's just like a little bit lighter over there. And you're beginning to realize that the night isn't going to last forever, that the, light, the light's not here, but the light's coming. That's hope, right? Hope is the confidence that things are going to get better. Hope is the confidence that something's going to change. Not that it has changed. If it's already changed, then you're not hoping for it. It just happened, right? Hope is the promise that things are going to be different. And that's what Lamentations 5 is. It's that structures are beginning to return. Life is beginning to be rebuilt. Things are beginning to go uh, back to life and meaning and purpose. They're not there yet, but it's coming. And there's, there's a hope in Lamentations 5 that we haven't seen in the rest of the book so far. The other, the other fascinating thing about this is that uh, there are no more actors in Lamentations 5. If you've been here through the series, you know that the, the first three poems especially, there were two voices. There was the prophet Jeremiah and then the people of the city who were embodied as the poet and the people of the, uh, the, people of the city were embodied as a woman, right? And so you'd kind of read and they would be having this conversation back and forth. But here, and we saw this a little bit last week, there's only we, there's only us. There, there's no more me and you it's just everyone who's grieving together. And the voices that we're hearing in Lamentations chapter 5 are the voices of the grieving people being brought front and center. And this is something that's difficult for us, right, to make space for people. It, it, it's not just in the church, but it does happen in the church. I think it happens in our culture. We don't like to hear people who are in pain. We don't like to listen to people who are in pain. We don't like to give space for people to sort of be in pain and grieve in front of us. We want to kind of uh, in the church, we have a way of dismissing that. We'll say, well, someone will start to be sad and we'll say, oh, I'll pray for you. Right? And then that lets us sort of leave because we said something nice and spiritual. And then we don't have to like sit with that pain. But we need the pain 
of lament to be front and center. And the end of Lamentations chapter 5 shows us why. I want to read to you from the end. This is in 17 through 22. But here's what happens. The poet says, Our hearts are sick and weary, and our eyes grow dim with tears, for Jerusalem is empty and desolate, a place haunted by jackals. But Lord, you remain the same forever. Your throne continues from generation to generation. Why do you continue to forget us? Why have you abandoned us for so long? Rescue us, O Lord, and bring us back to you again. Give us back the joy we once had, or have you utterly rejected us? Are you angry with us still? It is so easy for us when, when we praise God to kind of keep God at a distance, right? Like, if things are good, God can sort of be off doing his own thing, and we can talk about how great God is, how good life is, how, how we're hashtag blessed, like all that stuff, right? And it doesn't really require God to be, like, with us, because we're good, right? But pain insists on God's presence with us. Okay, it's like, it's like kids, right? When a kid is happy and playing, they can be in the other room and like you can be in your living room doing your thing or whatever, right? And things are good and they're just off like playing and having a good time and maybe they'll come in and show you their toy or whatever, but like they're good. When they're happy, it doesn't require that you be kind of right there with them. But what happens when they get hurt or when they get scared? They start shrieking, that like velociraptor shriek, right? And the only thing that will calm them down is the parent coming in and picking them up and hugging them and saying, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay, right? Because when things are good, the parent can be at a distance. But pain requires an intimate, close presence, Pain requires embrace. And that's what we see at the end of Lamentations where the people who are grieving are front and center and they're screaming to God, how long will we endure this? Where are you? Please come, save us, rescue us. That's the cry of people who are in pain. And you just don't hear that from people who aren't grieving, right? You don't have the same sort of sense of desperation. You don't have that same sort of sense of, of like, God, if you don't show up, we're lost, you just don't get that when people, from, from people who are, who are good, right? That's what lament does for us. The promise of lament is that God will be with us, near us, embracing us in a real, tangible, life-changing way. That's the promise of lament. And you just don't need that when you're not there. And so that's, that's why the church needs to make space for people who are in that space of lament to be front and center. We need their voices crying out to God because it helps us cry out with them. I know when you're good, like when you're fine, when life is like pretty great and someone else is in pain, you don't know what to do, right? You're like, ah, uh, I can't fix this for you. And that gets awkward, but what lament invites us to do is not try to fix it. Just try to let that person's grief guide us to cry out to God with them. That our sense of helplessness mirrors their sense of helplessness. Uh, that, that their desperation actually makes room for our desperation. And we can cry out with them, where are you, God? How long, O oh Lord? If you don't come, we're lost. We 
We need the voices of those who lament to be front and center in our congregations because they invite God to be with us in a way that we just don't do when we're in a spirit of praise. The, the pain of lament demands God's presence in a way that nothing else does. So with that in mind, uh, when, when, when we began the series, uh, one, of our, one of our members, Janet Nance, uh, came to me and said, uh, if, you, if you need someone to share about a journey of grief, I, I, would, be, I would be willing to share uh, some of my journey. And so uh, we sat down with her last week and, and she shared a little bit of her journey. So in, in the spirit of inviting uh, people's uh, the voices who have grieved and who have lamented front and center, I want to introduce you to, if you don't know Janet, introduce you to her and, and to, to get a little bit of her story. So would you take a minute to listen to Janet's story? My husband, Daniel, died 11 years ago. He died in a car wreck, and that's traumatic. And he headed off for work, and I just got busy doing things around the house and my daughter was gonna come out later. And an hour or so later, I looked up and there was a car coming through the gate and no, not one car, four cars. And I thought, what on earth? You know, which one of my kids has done something? They came in and they told me that my husband, Daniel, had been killed that morning before on his way to work and he had hydroplaned. And even though I didn't think there was a lot of traffic on that road, he had been hit on the driver's side and killed instantly. And there was such a sense of peace. I don't know that I could have verbalized it at the time, but it just was there. It just seemed like God worked through so many things that, that it took quite a while for us to process how wonderful it was that the Lord was just protecting us all, that Daniel died instantly, that he was a Christian, his co-workers knew it, but he wasn't the preacher get in your face type thing. I didn't even unconsciously, consciously realize how much resentment I carried against them until several years ago when I was in some um, group counseling after I moved here to Rowlett and I was going to the grief support group at Lake Point and um, finally after oh, probably six months of going, I finally said, I am angry at my in-laws for not helping my husband with the farm. We, he possibly would still be alive if that had not, you know, if things had worked differently. And the lady that was leading the counseling group when I, after the, the session was over, she said, that is a real breakthrough. Because up until that point, I'd always said everything was fine. I was dealing well with it. The church there in Texarkana was wonderful. 
I know that it was the Lord through all of those prayers of all of those people that just strengthened me through all of that. Janet, thank you for your, your sharing with that and your witness to God's faithfulness in that. Uh, friends, it is difficult for us, uh, again, not, it's not just in the ch church. At a cultural level, it's difficult for us to make space for grief, uh, particularly for other people's grief. Uh, we, we tend to rush past it. We tend to try to ignore it. We tend to try to, to, to deny it. And, uh, and when we do that, we, we cut off the gift that is in the midst of this lamentation process, which is this, this deep, insistent desire that God come and be with us in a way that we just don't experience outside of, outside of the, uh, the grieving space. So as, as a church, as people, we need to make space in our midst for those who are in pain, those who are lamenting, those who are grieving. We need to make space for that to be vocalized, for that to be voiced, and not just, uh, you know, not just you know, shuffled off to the margins. Uh, the season that we are about to enter into in the church is the season of Advent. Next week is when Advent starts. Advent is the season that prepares us for Christmas. And it's, it's appropriate that it follows this series on Lamentations because Lamentations looks at uh, how God's people began to process the, the loss of everything in the exile. And Advent invites us into that season of waiting. The people of Lamentations were crying out, How long, O Lord? When will you come and save us? And we know now from history that they waited more than 500 years for God to come. 500 years of praying that prayer. How long? When will you come? Please, if you don't, we're lost. Save us, rescue us. 500 years. And so the season of Advent invites us to wait with them. It invites us to anticipate with them. It invites us to prepare ourselves to welcome Christ at Christmas the way they were preparing themselves for God to come. Because when God came on that first Christmas, it was unprecedented, it was unexpected, and it far exceeded every expectation and hope that the people had had. And so too, when we hope during Advent, we face the brokenness of our world and we point at things and we say, how long, O oh Lord? When will you fix that? Please, we don't know what to do. Without you, we're lost. And the process of lamentation orients us in such a way that we can face those things, that we can embrace those people, we can go into those places and grieve with them and hope with them because we know how the story of Advent ended. The story of Advent ended with Jesus, who is called Emmanuel, which is a Hebrew word that means God with us. So that hoping, that anticipating, that asking when will you be with us was answered on Christmas when God came to be with us. God's answer to lamentation is his presence among us and with us. And so that's why we come to the communion table today. Because the communion table invites us to be united with God in his death. It invites us to share the table that Jesus shared with his followers the night before he was killed. When he broke bread and offered it to them, and he said, this is my body, it's broken for you. Take it and eat it. When he passed around a cup of wine, and he said, this wine is my blood, it's poured out for the forgiveness of sin. Take it and drink it. When we participate in the communion meal, we participate in Jesus' presence in our lives. 
we acknowledge that God has come to us, that God is among us, that God is with us. And so you don't have to be a member of Catalyst to receive communion today. If you are willing to acknowledge God's presence in your life, if you are willing to make space for people who are grieving, to call out with them and ask God to be with us, then you're welcome to come to the table today. Uh, I'm going to lead us in a prayer of examine before we go to the uh, before we come to the table. It's four questions uh, that will, uh, and I'll give you space to reflect prayerfully on them. Uh, usually, I say I ask you to think about the week that uh, was before and the week that's ahead of us, but because ahead of us is the season of Advent, I'm going to ask you to just kind of be thinking about this whole season of preparation leading up to Christmas. It's a little less than a month, right? And how you can be present with people during this season of Christmas, because I think often holiday cheer becomes another excuse to sort of ignore pain, right? You're only allowed to be happy at Christmas time. And so uh, this is a way we can sort of acknowledge that that's not the case for some people, and that there's maybe something beautiful in what God wants to do in our lives, specifically during this time of preparing ourselves for Christmas. So I'm going to ask you those four questions, and then as you're ready, I'm going to invite you to come forward after I've prayed for us. So here's the first question I want you to consider. When this week have you made space to listen to voices who are in pain, voices who are grieving, When this week did you ignore or avoid voices in pain? When in this season leading to Christmas will you be tempted to avoid or ignore voices in pain? How can you make space to be with people who are hurting during this Advent season?
Let's pray together. God, we have been gathered together this morning to consider uh, what it looks like to make space for the voices of the, those in pain, those grieving in our midst. We acknowledge that this is a difficult thing for us to do. It is a scary thing for us to do. And yet we have seen in your own example that when we called out to you, when we cried out to you, you dropped everything and came, became one of us and came to us and gave your life and your death to us that we might be rescued. So as we approach your table this morning, we approach on the cusp of a very busy season, uh, one that's already become very busy for many of us. We need to be reminded yet again that busyness does not always equate to holiness. And that sometimes getting things done is less important than being with people. As we approach and receive these wafers and juice, we ask that they become a spiritual food, that they nourish us, give us eyes to see the world the way you see the world. Give us ears to hear the voices of those who are in pain, that we might learn to cry out with them, come Lord Jesus, be with us. Renew us again, make us into your people, send us into the world as beacons of hope and light, as a people who make space for the grieving among us, that we might all learn to worship you more fully together. We offer these prayers when we approach your table this morning in the name of your son, Jesus. As you're leaving, a little bit of homework, because next week does begin Advent, and we're going to be looking at what it means to prepare ourselves for Christmas in a way that we don't forget during this week what you're hoping for. Uh, the end of this lament series has pointed us towards hope, the conviction that 